This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Hello, this is Tony Prescott for the Convergent Science podcast series at uh, Barcelona Summer School 2013. And I'm here with uh, Paul Verschur, who is the chair of the summer school, but also this morning speaker, where he was talking about consciousness and the machine. And I'm also joined by Tim Pierce, who is on on this occasion, uh, Tim and I are going to be interviewing Paul. So, uh, Paul, in this morning's presentation, you began by talking about the importance of memory in consciousness. But as your talk evolved, memory seemed to go into the background. But let's begin with that and say, um, how much of what we are now and what we're aware of when we think of ourselves is to do with our past history and how Mm -hmm. does it affect us? Right, well, so the idea would be there that if we think about the conscious content um, that we might experience, or the way we experience our interaction with the world, this is very much predicated upon our memory of the past. And it's also an idea of a book by uh, by Jerry Edelman that he wrote in uh, the late 80s called The Remembered Present. And actually at the time, I wrote a review of this book because this also this book was about uh, Edelman's theory of consciousness. And um, even though there were a lot of really interesting and rich ideas in there, I was still left after reading this book, as with a lot of the literature I saw at the time about consciousness, about, well, can we at this stage, are we really in a position to say anything meaningful about consciousness beyond this very f- basic observation that our, the experience of present is predicated on our past? So uh, the experience of present of, of the present is predicated for you on something rather different than our memory of the past. It's something to do with creating an instantaneous idea of, of what you call the unified scene. And uh, for you, is, is, is that an adequate description of consciousness, or are you picking out a particular aspect of consciousness mm-hmm. there? Well, uh, traditionally, so going back to William James, um, a characterizing feature of consciousness was this notion of a unified scene, right? So that even though we might find ourselves in a very confusing, ambiguous, and unpredictable world, in our experience, there's always this this unitary understanding of the world that, that we're in. So that's a unified scene. And the question then becomes a little bit like, well, okay, um, what is really the purpose of maintaining such a scene from a biological perspective? That doesn't mean that evolution has a purpose, but it just means, well, what's the functional role of maintaining such a a coherent, integrated scene of the world we find ourselves in and of our interactions with this world? And I was also then referring there to to the work by Björn Merker, because Björn um, proposed this this notion that maybe we maintain this this integrated scene as a way to counteract uncertainties that, that we encounter in the world, that the unified scene helps us to disambiguate uh, the states of the world. As For instance, if we, uh, example Bjorn would use, is okay, you, you move about in the world, your sensors take your eyes, they, they move in different ways that you cannot fully compensate through your psychotic system. So now this imposes noise and in input signals. And by having a unified scene, I can sort of disambiguate and counteract this noise so that I actually can have a better understanding of the world I'm in. So uh, consciousness is, in, in a way, a filter, excluding stuff which is perhaps less important uh, and, and bringing in the things which are really pertinent to acting now? Well, it depends. I look upon it. So if you look at the literature, uh, all in all, that there, you, do, you will not find many, many strong statements about the function of consciousness. Right? So you might find statements on, let's say, the correlates of consciousness, like people might have found activity in certain, brain, in certain parts of the brain and so on. And you will find uh, people ident- isolating certain contributing factors. And this I have summarized in what I call the, the grounded and active predictive experience model, which means that conscious uh, content or qualia 
is on the one hand grounded in in physical existence, right? In embodiment. This would be the first axiom, and that you see expressed in the work by people such as uh, Thomas Metzinger, um, uh, Bud Craig uh, would would pertain to that, or also Damasio or Thomas Nagel, where the, where the, the core feature of of conscious states is very much organized through notions of self. Um, the inactive part is you will find more in the work by people such as Kevin O'Regan, um, O'Regan, sorry, who would say, well, qualia, the content of conscious states, is very much defined by our direct sensory motor coupling to the world, right? So I hold this cup. Um, in some sense, I'm able to hold this cup and I experience this cup because of law-like relationships with this object, and these laws are now defining my my quality and my conscious states. Then you would have a predictive component, which goes back to people like um, Gary Heslow, uh, Barcelou, and others, who would emphasize very strongly that it's not only about immediate sensory motor coupling, but it's very strongly dependent on your ability to predict and simulate the world, so this is the predictive element. And then on top of that, we would have uh, theories like written by Jerry Edelman, Giulio Tononi, who would emphasize issues of integration and differentiation, which means conscious states are very rich. They come in, in many different forms, so they're, they're highly differentiated from each other. But within every scene, every specific conscious scene is in itself highly integrated and, and coherent. And this then maps to a last set of proposals on the neural substrate, which emphasize a notion of what's called a, a global workspace, advanced by Bernard Bars and, and further now, um, elaborated by uh, Jean-Pierre Jeanjeu and Stanislav Dahan, uh, where this notion of integration and differentiation is more mapped onto a neural substrate in terms of the ability of neural states to enter a global workspace, which is which would then be the neural substrate of this conscious scene. So actually there are different perspectives on this. And one objective I have in, in my approach is to not necessarily say, well, now we have to choose among these different alternatives, but I think I think we actually can find a compromise where we can see that actually each of these elements are necessary conditions of of conscious states, but they're not sufficient. There's something missing. So that there are certain prerequisites here, and quite a few of them are attached to having a brain. But uh, in your talk, you also were quite critical of, if you like, the search for the neural or brain correlates of consciousness. Um, it, it, do you have an issue about levels of an ex explanation here or w mm -hmm. what's your concern about that yeah so uh, that's a bit of the, the 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 difference you see in approaches of on the one hand Gerald edelman who um in the late 80s had this idea of okay a theory-based research program of consciousness um also tying it to, to what he called real world artifacts or robots versus the approach more advocated by francis crick who, who coined this notion of the neural correlate of consciousness, uh, where you would say, well, we don't need a theoretical framework on the basis of which we make specific predictions. We should basically search for different correlations between functional operationalizations of consciousness and neural response patterns to say, well, we might find activity in areas X, Y, and Z correlate with varying levels of, of conscious states. So this is the discrepancy, and I feel, from a more general methodological perspective, the search for correlations, I think, is a very um, yeah, unfortunate way to try to gain insight in reality, because the universe is filled with correlations, and most of these are not very informative. So I think science is tied to theory and, and constrained predictions and, and validation of prediction. But um, do, do you think it's possible to have one instantiation, either physical instantiation or theory that can somehow take into account all of these different diverse views of consciousness? Yeah, you do. I do. So, uh, so one, thing, one thing that I have been developing and tried to show this morning is that, so for the last 20 years or so, I've developed a theory of, of mind and brain. It's called uh, distributed adaptive control. And roughly it says, look, the brain can be seen as a layered control structure where we have a reactive component. Roughly, we could map this on brainstem and midbrain structures where you have strongly predefined behavioral programs. Think about the central gray controlling very 
complex stereotype behaviors in a very predefined fashion. Um, then on top of that layer, you have an adaptive layer, as I call it, which I see more as a, as a substrate of classical conditioning. And essentially, you can see, look at this layer as developing a state space, right? It helps you to, to label the world, to say, well, these are the objects in the world. This is the relative importance of, of these objects to my existence. And then parallel to that, you learn the state space of your own actions. The, third, uh, the, the next layer is contextual, where you actually use these states now to develop plans for action and policies. So, but in, across these layers of the architecture, you can see columns that on the one hand deal with just processing states of the world, right? We have reflexes that pick up, let's say, loud noises. Yeah, there's a loud noise, you freeze. It's a predefined uh, processing system with, with, with one component completely focusing on the world. But similarly, at these adaptive and contextual layers, we process states of the world up to the level of having a map of the city and making predictions where you want to go. The next column is pure self. These are all states of self, maybe going from your hypothalamus that tells you that you know your body has certain deficits you have to work on uh, and re re replenish to very abstract notions of let's say your professional career the sort of the self notion the self column and the third column is then uh, all about action and interaction motor systems that you can find at spinal cord levels to frontal areas right so in this matrix i think we can disambiguate a lot of neural processing and neural structures so you have you have levels of self, but to what extent is it really fair to talk about this as consciousness? Because um, and if you look, for instance, at the classic experiments on blind sight, and so you can get uh, you know, the ability to orient to visual cues without having any consciousness that those visual cues are out there and driving your your movements because yeah. your visual cortex isn't operating properly, but your midbrain, your visual midbrain, is able to detect mm -hmm. them. So, I mean, isn't that uh, clear evidence of a dissociation between what we talk about generally as consciousness and these lower-level systems you've been discussing? Absolutely. No, so I completely agree with you, and this is also an important point. The, the theory I just sketched out for you in, uh, very rapidly, uh, distributed depth of control in these components has not that much to say on consciousness. However, it does pertain rather directly to this, this GP framework of <clears throat> the grounded and active predictive experience model, which is summarized in the current state of the art. And what I, what I show there is, for instance, if you emphasize self and embodiment as, as defining qualia, I can show you how it fits in this overall deck theory that it is, it's, it's strongly grounded. I mean, our knowledge of the world is strongly grounded in our embodiment, but it, it doesn't say anything about whether it's conscious or not. It's, it's neutral to that issue. So what I want to show there is the, the theoretical framework, the theory we have, that we have tested the many robots and the many theoretical studies and so on, and also in, in, uh, in the clinic, that theory maps very well on this summary of the state of the art to illustrate and emphasize that I believe the state of the art is essentially highlighting necessary features of consciousness and not sufficient ones. So there's something missing in this picture. That's exactly the point. And it also means there's something missing in the theory as I summarized it so far. So in terms of DAC then, it sounds um, like a good description of what a whole brain is doing. I mean, it's almost like a complete description of the different requirements for a brain. So if that were the case, how would we define which subsets of that behavior may relate to consciousness or not? Or do, do, mm -hmm. is something else required or is it all there? If it is, do certain parts of it at different points in time relevant and not relevant? Mm -hmm. what, what is the relationship? Well, so I, I see this um, as a transition in, in your, your interactions with, with the world. So on the one hand, the deck structure that I just described that also captures these, these key components of the state of the art in consciousness research deals essentially with interactions with the physical world. And I summarize that in what I call the H4W problem, where you say, well, to interact with the world, um, so to, to, to generate action, to know how I interact with the world to the age, I have to answer four questions. It is why, what are my motivations and goals to act, um, what, what are the objects in the world that pertain to these goals, where, where are these objects in the world, where am I located in the world, what's the spatial layout of this whole configuration, and lastly, it's when, right? how do I time and sequence my behavior 
to be adapted to this world. And my my claim is that the starting point of, of the whole story is that this might be nice for interactions with the physical world, but it doesn't require consciousness. Because interactions with the physical world are often of a fairly unitary character. That means you interact with rocks and then dirt and whatever, non-agents, right? Dead matter. And interaction with dead matter is, is fairly straightforward. And I think consciousness really comes into the story when you start to interact with other agents. That's really the transition point, and that's a very specific transition point that I think um, allows us now to make to, to hypothesize that certain aspects of the, of the theory are incomplete. And that, and that if you want also during evolution, very specific aspects of brains were invented to really uh, deal with and solve that specific problem of dealing with other agents. So dealing with other agents, though, is is part of this uh, larger problem. That, so the you identify these components that people have suggested are important, and you say that they're necessary but not sufficient. And the extra ingredient, is that what you're calling the unified scene, or is it more than that? No, it's more than that. So the extra ingredient, <coughs> so we have to backtrack a little bit, because the unified scene we know, um, I mean, as a concept, it's around for a long time. Okay, So there's not that much controversy on it um we know we can we can manipulate this this scene if we use drugs for instance like drugs like lsd or ketamine and so on really can lead to changes to this to this unified scene as you experience it and um also when i myself was a subject in these experiments on on, in, on psychosis um essentially it's done by giving you ketamine and you if you're lucky, you get psychotic or unlucky. Um, this leads to a very severe distortion of the conscious scene. I mean, you lose a sense of space and time, for instance. So that means the conscious scene is maintained by a brain. At least this is what it suggests to me. But the other remarkable observation came from the 80s in experiments by, uh, by Libet, where he shows that the conscious scene essentially is not operating in real time. Like the conscious scene, these are very nice, well-defined experiments. Basically, he showed the dissociation between brain states that relate to our actions and conscious experience. So that the conscious experience is delayed relative to the brain states that relate to actions, suggesting, if you want, the brain already knows what to do before you experience that. So now that, that led to this strange conundrum, because it means like, okay, here we have all this, this metabolic power and compute power of the brain dedicated to building a conscious scene and maintaining it, but it's running it's running behind in time, so it's not causing your ongoing behavior. And it led some, like Dan Dennett, to say, well, it therefore might be an epiphenomenon. Maybe consciousness, therefore, is not causing and cannot cause behavior. And I think this is where our paths start to diverge, where I think people have overlooked some important contributions that consciousness can make in the control of uh, real-time behavior. Could you elaborate a bit more on, mm -hmm. on what you think that then consciousness is adding? Right, exactly. So, well, think of, first we have H4W. I interact with the world with bricks, right? Well, a brick, I can look at it on the basis of its surface features. I can make a pretty accurate prediction what it will do, probably nothing. So now imagine that brick is not a brick, but it's an agent, it's SpongeBob. And he, SpongeBob has, has goals and wishes and intentions and strategies. Now I have a whole new problem because SpongeBob doesn't show at its surface uh, essentially what these internal states are. This is a very fundamental problem uh, of, of, of estimating the intentional states of others that they're not at, they're not advertised at the outside. This is a, a, a fundamental problem, and uh, also well recognized already since since Hume, at least, the the inference of intentional states. So what I'm saying, well, during the Cambrian explosion 500 million years ago, about, I think something really unique happened in evolution. That suddenly, agents, animals, found themselves in a world filled with other agents that could predate on them or they could predate on and they would have conspecifics maybe in different social structures we don't this is not so clear but now we move from living in a world of bricks of living in a world filled with other agents and these agents have hidden states that we cannot easily assess and now where consciousness comes in in my mind as the hypothesis 
it allows you to to actually run massive parallel simulations on the world. That means if I want to successfully exist in a world with other agents, I have to run simulations on their internal states to make predictions. I have to do this in parallel because I have to operate in real time. But the problem of parallel operation is, of course, that you have parallel control systems that are not necessarily all coherent. So they might they might actually make opposite contradictory decisions. So now being a single agent, I have a, I have a big optimization problem because it means, well, if I have all these parallel loops performing their own simulations, controlling my real-time performance, how do I optimize them? How do I know whether I made a mistake or I did it right? And how do I perc- how do I translate that singular observation to parallel control loops? And that's where the conscious scene comes in. So how I see this is real-time operation is performed by these parallel control loops so I can keep track of my social environment, make predictions on what will might occur. Now, with some delay, I maintain a coherent conscious scene that's really like a compressed state where I go from the possible that is, that is pursued in these simulations to the actual that is really the collapse across all these simulations of what's, what I believe is really out there. This is the world in which I operate and work and the world that gives me feedback. This, this is by necessity intentional. I can now make, make statements on value and they can percolate those value statements if you want back into my parallel controller. So... Real-time operation is parallel. This automatically leads to a, a credit assignment problem that I solve by having a singular uh, integrated conscious state. But it is okay. Which also it sounds like um, it, it sounds like a good way uh, of explaining interactions. But is, is there is there uh, really is it so unique with interactions between agents, for instance? Uh, any interaction with the world has all sorts of indeterminisms, right? That we can't necessarily predict. So don't we have to com- compute all of those? And didn't we have to do all of that, say, before the Cambrian explosion or whatever? Mm-hmm. Well, I would I would claim that... Um, so before, so the most complex organisms, apparently, um, really early Cambrian, before Cambrian, maybe it was a worm-like creature, Okay. So if you're a worm, I would believe that H4W is not a big deal for you, right? You crawl around in the dirt, you follow some gradients, that's it. Um, after the Cambrian, suddenly we have these 30 body plants that now can define, again, many variations on these body plants, defining many different kinds of animals that now exist in complex ecological systems. I think that's a real qualitative change from being the worm in the dirt. So, it's, it's, so from having... Um, a simulation in my brain which helps me uh, make predictions about the future so I can make, make better choices uh, and part of that simulation in my brain is simulation simulation of other beings including conspecifics and uh, I guess at one point in the simulation I also have a model of myself but it, it, does that model of myself somehow have some privileged status that then it becomes uh, uh, part of my consciousness in some way well, yeah, I mean, in some sense, your model of self has access to other sensor states than your model of others. And so, for instance, you do have direct feedback from your own body, from your own organs, and so on, um, that can all feed into some sort of self-model. So, yes, the self-model is definitely privileged, and that's why also in the deck architecture, self is really one of the is the central organizing column in this whole system. And I also believe that, indeed, for subjective states in the end it is of course a unified scene that tells you how the self the i is really placed in the world and maybe that self-model is is the basis for building models of others particularly in my own species so i can say well if i was that person what would i be doing sure no no, look i agree with this so So this is this is of course uh, also a fairly well recognized mechanism of of social perception going back to uh, to merleau ponty right that that uh, among others that you that you interpret states of others in terms of self, and this is also where I think this whole discussion on, on the mirror mechanisms have become very relevant. But a little, a lot of this can play out at a subconscious level. So, so a lot of people uh, try to explain consciousness in terms of cortex, right, or th- uh, mm-hmm. thalamico-cortical interactions and loops, and presumably the cortex came quite a while after this process, right? 
of Cambrian explosions. So it's an interesting question. Do you need a cortex for this? Mm -hmm. Or how come they didn't kind of occur, co-occur at the same mm -hmm. time if you, if, you, if you need some loops with, with a cortical structure? Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile mm -hmm. these two different, very significant developments in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in brain architectures? Right. Well, so this is a good question, but it also raises important issues on brain evolution, right? And so you have this, this traditional McLean notion of the tree on the brain where, let's say, you first you have, let's say, your lizard brain, and then after a few million years, you add a new layer and so on, right? They're like modules that you stack together. I'm not sure that's really a reasonable way to think about it, and I, I would believe, actually we had another beautiful talk here with uh, Stan Grillner, who takes the lamprey as his model animal, uh, and he basically shows that the lamprey that, that evolved, emerged very early in the Cambrian, uh, so we're talking 500 million years ago, basically has all the ingredients of a vertebrate nervous system, right? In, in, in a minimally a prototypical state. So all, all structures are there. But then I would believe consciousness is a transient memory system. So this is why I think the thalamocortical system that depends very much strongly on its dynamics um, is a very good candidate to at least be part of that substrate. But I have absolutely no problems with suggestions like with, like Bjorn Merker, who says, well, maybe there are also already st structures more focusing on zona inserta uh, superior colliculus that already have rudimentary forms of such a, a transient memory system that we might also attribute uh, some minimal conscious states to. For me, I, I don't see a too categorical but distinction there. But the key thing for me is that we're talking about transient memory systems. But then doesn't it become a bit strange why the cortex then developed? I mean, if these things were sufficient to have these requirements for consciousness? Or are there, or are there other reasons for cortex that are Well, cortex... I look at cortex more as a big memory system, right? So you can think about primary sensory areas with their receptive fields expressing a form of memory of states of the world. You can think about more frontal areas. You might find states that relate more to strategies and monitoring goals and so on. So here we have this massive memory system. So I think the contribution of this of cortex is more memory, allowing you sort of more complex representations and so on. But as such, as an isolated substrate, I think it won't help you much in being conscious or not, because I believe that really strongly depends on the dynamics you will find between cortical areas and subcortical areas, such as the thalamus, right? That in that interaction, um, conscious states would be residing. And this also would, of course, be consistent with these the literature that would show that uh, different kinds of anesthetics that really modulate states of the thalamus indeed directly modulate levels of consciousness so um it's not a i think it would be naive to 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 localize this too much in in cortex and we should never forget that of course we, we're, we're all strongly biased by cortex because it's so easy to measure from it relative to other areas so um one of the uh t topics you touched on at some depth was uh what's uh uh, been known as Tononi's Phi theory mm -hmm. of uh, consciousness, which mm -hmm. is uh, currently fairly popular. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a, a theory that makes a very specific prediction about uh, properties of the brain and how those might be linked to consciousness. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you quickly summarize the theory for us and perhaps say where you see the problems with that are? Well, so, so this integration information theory, which... which um, Duro Tononi also developed already working with Jerry Edelman uh, many years ago, essentially tries to give a quantification of brain states that pertain to consciousness. Right? So the question could be, look, I've, I've, I'm asleep, the brain is in a certain state. I'm awake and conscious, and the brain is in another state. How can I have a quantification of that difference? So and it's a neural correlate that we're talking it's about. It's definitely a neural correlate. Right. version of this and oh, so it's a neural correlate approach and the, the measure essentially tells you something about let's say the variability of neural states essentially julio conceptualizes this as uh, a reflection of the idea of a unified scene a unified scene would be an undividable whole of information right so so that means how can i identify now these these individable holes of information uh, or these these partitions of information and your ability to then, the complexity of these partitions would tell you something about the conscious state. 
So essentially, it's like an entropy measure, you could say, but with, with some bells and whistles added to it, it tells you something about the variability of neural states. And then what they have shown, what Julia has shown, I think very nicely, is then how that measure indeed correlates in some way with different levels of consciousness, such as sleep, wakefulness, or different perturbations of brain states, and so on. But of course, the, the question is, okay, here now I have a, a quantification. I mean, it, it started out as a mutual information measure, and now it has evolved in different forms. But in the end, it, it, it's an approximation of some, some entropy. And um, the, the point is, of course, yeah, but what does it really tell me about, let's say, the function of consciousness in this case? Or what does it really tell me about the underlying uh, dynamic organization of it? That's not so much. But is it not uh, nice to have a marker if indeed that is what it could be? Uh, of course. But yeah. then, uh, so to test that, what, what we have done is we, we have looked at other markers of brain activity. We have looked at neural responses in the macaque uh, dorsal premotor cortex that we have analyzed and published recently, a paper with uh, Stefano Verena in Rome and Carney Marcos as first author in, in Neuron, where we looked at the role of the intertrial variability in decision-making in, in the monkey. And then basically you can show that the variability between trials is predictive of, of performance if you manipulate, let's say, the certainty of the animal. So then we thought, well, here we have a more generic measure of neural variability. We know it relates to performance. So let's compare this now to what this phi measure would do on the same data. So it is unreasonable to believe that the monkey throughout this trial would be conscious of these states of its premotor uh, area you know, for the following reason. What you see is that when the stimulus comes on that, that informs the monkey about the kinds of action it has to execute, different action options are active in this area. And slowly, through competition, one will be chosen. One will be selected. The conscious scene is unitary. So that means the plurality of actions that is represented in this area early on in the trial cannot be part of your measure of consciousness because that's not the unitary scene. So the only part that can possibly part that can possibly contribution to the unitary conscious scene is once once the system has converged to a single response in through a competitive process. So you would expect then if I have a measure that is really specific to consciousness, then it would tell you nothing about this pre-conscious state in this area where you have a plurality of options open because the conscious scene is unitary and it would give you a lot of information when you have the, the choice made because that's when you, when you have the content for a future conscious state. However, what we see is that this phi measure basically is exactly the inverse of our intertrial variability. So that means in this very specific and restricted element, that uh, example that they only used to, to, to sort of illustrate a bit the problem, the measure as such indeed tells you something about the variability, the entropy in a neural response, but it's completely unspecific to a pre-conscious or post-conscious or conscious phase uh, because it happily gives you a measure when you have many options open, which cannot be part of the conscious scene because it has to be unitary, and where you have a single option open, which can be part of a conscious scene. So I think the measure is really not sensitive enough to, to give you specific information on consciousness. So this, this particular measure may have some problems with it, but, but I, w I think what may be interesting uh, from the point of view of studying consciousness is at least uh, it, it's a hypothesis about how you could measure objectively uh, conscious states in another mind. And you can even go as far, since it's an information measure, as say, well, let's take uh, minds that may not be instantiated in brains, they might be instantiated in computers or robots, mm -hmm. and we can apply that measure to those other minds. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we could find a measure, maybe IIT isn't the best one, but, but if we could do that, if we could really see a clear marker for which you have an objective definition, mm -hmm. this would be useful. And, and your own program of building robots would benefit from that. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how would you plan to measure consciousness in, in robots? Mm. Well, look, I agree, of course. If we have tools to quantify our measurements and these quantifications are specific to phenomena we want to explain. This is this is key, right? This is essential. But it's a little bit like the discussion around the IQ, right? I mean, at some point now we have these IQ tests, 
uh, we get scores, but in the end, we don't really know what we're measuring. And so it's, it's all this whole issue of specificity, right? So if, if you say, look, I have a measure here of the, the, the variability of neural states or the, the, invi- the, the, the ability of, an, of a system to maintain indivisible informational subdomains or something of this kind, that's all fine. But it's all about the specificity. If you say, look, it's a specific measure to consciousness, then it has, you have to show that specificity. If it's not specific, of course, it leads to confusion. But I do agree with you that it is, that it is absolutely essential to develop these kinds of measures. And what I expect, though, is that we have to constrain them more by at least a, a, a theoretical understanding of the substrate that, that generates conscious state. So I would suggest these kinds of measures might be an interesting starting point, but maybe we have to make sure we really apply them to the right subsystems as opposed to in a rather indiscriminate fashion to the whole of the brain. But um, just to push you on this, your, your own program of research uh, includes a very ambitious uh, target of building a robot with consciousness. But unless you're prepared to commit in advance to some particular measure of consciousness, uh, how will you know you've succeeded? And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, without that commitment, it, you could easily, as you build your robot, uh, you know, modify your goals in order to fit where you mm-hmm. get to, and I think this is the risk with with these kinds of programs. Absolutely, but the point is, I'm commit. I, I think I'm doing better than a neural correlate approach because I'm committing myself to very specific theoretical constructs. So, given the theory, what I'm saying, so I move from H four W to H five W because now I have to deal with who to deal with who. I have to simulate in order to optimize these internal simulations. I must must serialize again. And, and solve my credit assignment problem. So I'm making very specific predictions, and, and that the core of this is all going in the direction of conscious states. That means my, my current task description, um, uh, biased by, by my self-model, resides in a transient memory. So that means it, it's not expressed in a structural memory. It's really in a memory that is transient in neural activity. So it can very flexibly be changed. And I believe that we might find echoes of this uh, in the thalamocortical system. So that now means that I have to say, okay, in my robot, what I expect to see is, one, I have an understanding of the task the robot is in. I have an understanding of the memories the robot has formed in the past about this task. And now I can find echoes of, of these states in this transient memory system. So I think these are very specific predictions that we can address with, with the kinds of quantifications we already have. So we can, can we tie you down on this to say that? You know, in 10 years, you've built your robot and it solves the H5W problem in some way that we've agreed is appropriate and similar to perhaps the human H5W problem. Mm -hmm. Then you would make the strong claim that that robot was conscious because it had solved that problem in a demonstrable way. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back and check out. No, you should. (laughs) Moreover, I will have have found... um, uh, corollaries of this also in the human brain because for instance I believe that um, this transient memory system we're, we're dealing with uh, has to also go through very specific update cycles certain uh, persistence also we know now a certain delay re- re- with respect to real time operation so there are very specific testable predictions coming out of this that we can then bring bring back to also human humans and uh, and other animals. So, so if we had a system like that that was able to uh, compute these uh, possible uh, intentional uh, stances and then select one, bind it to the, the current, uh, the present moment, um, what, what's, uh, what would we uh, be able to account for in terms of going back to the original gape with these different criteria, of different theories for consciousness? Mm-hmm. Would it be able to kind of account for all of those and, in, yeah. and include them? And if so, in what way or what features of that system would then uh, basically account for the different aspects of mm-hmm. how people have been thinking about consciousness? Right. Well, so, so my claim is that um, already in the theory, we are accounting for these elements, right? So, for instance, we, we spend a lot of time looking at, at predictive uh, systems in the cerebellum, in the cortex, uh, subcortical areas also like basal ganglia. So you see, prediction occurs in many of these systems. Now, this is one of the axioms of this GP model, going back to people like you know, I mentioned earlier, Jerry Haslow, Barcelo, and so on, and also Bjorn Merker, 
that the qualia are defined through prediction. So we already so prediction is an organizing principle of the whole theory, um, expressed at many different levels of organization. So this already shows you that that to say well qualia are prediction is not specific enough. It occurs at, at all these levels. So what what I am aiming for is that we can give this now more specificity. That we can say well actually it is one subset of predictions generated by a very specific system that are pertaining to conscious states. For instance, it's an open question. Do the cerebellum, which is 15 million uh, loops in, in the human uh, brain, uh, making up more than 65% of the neural populations of the central nervous system, each of these loops is independently generating a prediction all the time. And when predictions are met or not met, dependent on the outcome of that, it might generate event triggers. Well, Right now, it's really unclear whether violations of predictions in the cerebellum that will be conveyed through the inferior olive. The inferior olive, by the way, is again under feedback control by the cerebellum on a, on a prediction-based level. Do violations of predictions in the cerebellum in any way percolate into conscious states? I don't think so. But now we can try to, to, to evaluate that more specifically. Okay, that we can really delineate a subset of predictions the brain generates at many levels of its organization to say, well, it's only this subset that in a very specific way gets gated into a conscious scene. I, I do expect very specific gating mechanisms there at work. But if it's the cerebellum that's computing all these possibilities and then the fact that when we remove it, we still have a sense of consciousness, um, how, how do we reconcile those two facts together? Well, I think it's important to distinguish levels of consciousness, like um, Steve Lowry has been writing quite a bit on this, that, for instance, I can be asleep, I can be anesthetized, I can be in coma, I can be minimally conscious, I can be awake and alert. These are all different levels of consciousness, right? But then, orthogonal to that, if you want, you have content of consciousness, right? I can be aware of the interview we're having right now, I can be... Uh, fantasizing while talking to you uh, about uh, sailing uh, or other things I could I could be doing as well. Um, so that's content. These are this is content of consciousness, and I see the the, cere the cerebellum. Um, your question is very much pertaining to this content of consciousness issues. So if you remove a cerebellum, suddenly you might be ataxic. You might have difficulties controlling motor. Uh, you might have some difficulties with timing issues. Uh, there are also there, there are suggestions about cognitive deficits you might suffer from with cerebellar lesions. So these, of course, will all pertain to a change of, of conscious state because suddenly I cannot play tennis anymore. And yes, this will, this will restrict my potential space of experiences. But, but it but doesn't tell you anything specific about the organization of consciousness. But this just sounds like a, a whole description of behavior under brain. I mean, the fact that... Uh this content of consciousness seems to be directly uh, related to just what the brain does. Um, no, I don't think so. Behavior, no? Look, uh, it's an architectural theory of consciousness and a functional theory. Absolutely. But, yeah. but I mean, a lot of the time when people are, when we think about what it means to be conscious, it's, it's the experience of standing on the beach and watching the sunset mm -hmm. and that, unique set of feelings that that evokes in you that's what we, we often mean by by the experience of mm -hmm. consciousness and and that's all about content surely, but we only it? spend a very small fraction of our life standing on the beach looking at the sunset though yeah, but i can be looking at the color of this microphone cover mm -hmm. which is yellow and thinking that reminds me of the sunset on the beach mm -hmm. you know so it's it's evoking Mm -hmm. uh, oh, memory is another yeah, input but, channel right but sure. it's, it's evoking those th those feelings in me so mm -hmm. it's about feeling so it's, I, I find it hard to separate the, the content and the vehicle aspects of, okay. of consciousness in the way you want to do. Yeah, but for me, so how I see the feeling, which for me comes out of this whole self column of the, of the architecture, uh, starting really very low down and really embodiment and the very primitive sensations to the notion of a career. Um, this is the information channel, if you want, that feeds then into the feeling aspects of of a conscious state, and also it's a strong ground. It also grounds very much conscious experience in self, right? So there's this feeling undertone, if you want, 
of the conscious state, but I don't really see this as being problematic. I mean, my I have structures in my brain that that assess my interaction with the world, right? Um, so, um, and this can be expressed in a different, in an emotional undertone, like. I can feel relaxed. I can feel stressed now talking to you, or, or aroused, and, and so on. And um, this defines, if you want, an emotional foundation upon which other information channels are integrated in my inner conscious scene. But I don't see this as problematic, really. I, what would be problematic about that? Well, and that this is what people have talked about being the hard problem. But what is it like to to be Paul Vachor? Mm is a lot down to what is the specific set of feelings that, mm -hmm. that you experience mm -hmm. as you go through your life when you're sailing on your boat, when you're talking to us. And But uh, I, I get the impression that you're wanting to orthogonalize maybe that aspect of consciousness and what you see as the functional, functional architecture mm -hmm. of consciousness. Well, so for the heart problem, the so-called heart problem, which is indeed how do we give a third-person description of a first-person experience, um, I think it's a little bit of a fake problem. It's a little bit of a red herring, right? I mean, if we study memory, let's say, and we say, look, okay, what's really the, what's the engram of a certain association? Where is it located? We don't really pose this question. Like, well, what's it what's it really like to be that engram, to really have that information, right? It doesn't seem to be a real issue. Or we don't challenge a physicist with explaining to us what it's really like to be a chair, from from a, a quantum f a physical perspective, um, qu a quantum mechanical perspective, this is it, it, it seems a question that. But suddenly, with with consciousness, we all get a little bit flippy about the whole thing, and suddenly we have to know what it is really really like to be that one specific bat in the world. Well, maybe we could also well, but that's not really our problem. We don't. This is not really. What we need to explain, look, we have to also be clear what the scientific theory is all about, right? We have to explain, predict, and control. Do we have to explain human experience at the level of a millisecond to millisecond record and explanation of single individuals? And I don't think that's true because for, for many reasons, we don't commit ourselves to that level of explanation from any other phenomena, attention, memory, and so on. And I think there's a way to deal with this problem. So... I have to be. I must explain how uh, a conscious being can experience just anything. I don't have to explain why it must experience hanging off the ceiling or something like this, right? So um, that means I've, I have to explain the potentiality of experience and the mechanisms underlying this potentiality. It's not our our, our responsibility, I think, to really be able to to take a single subjective state and explain it. But now. The way we can make progress here, I think, is indeed by bringing in the robots. I think this is the, this is the important issue here because essentially the problem with with the third person perspective on, on subjective experience is that we cannot control time, right? If if you go back to indeed psychoanalysis, then there you would say, well, I have subconscious factors that sort of feed into my behavior uh, and my experience, and I have to get. I have to gain access into these. I have to sort of get to catharsis to improve myself. And for that, I have to delve into my memory in a very complex process to relive my whole life to find catharsis. So it illustrates, if we could just control time, if you would have a time machine, you could go back in time and see, okay, did my mother really beat me so much when I was, when I was young, as an example. So with a robot, I have this potential. With a robot, I can control time because I can measure all the states of this machine as it evolves over time. So now if the robot at the age of 20 suddenly thinks, look at the yellow microphone and thinks of a, of a sunset, I can actually enter that system and parse. I can interpret its subjective state. And I can also explain where these, this content came from. And I think this is the best we can do. Well, I think... Um We've had some strong predictions from Paul so far, and uh, we've already tied him down to, to saying when we'll have met the, the goal of, of creating a conscious robot. Um, I think uh, as, as we do in all of these interviews, there are certain questions at the end, and Paul's had a long time to think about and prepare these, so we're expecting great answers. So the first question, uh, Paul, is uh, a lot of what we do here in BCBT is about trying to inspire next generation of scientists. And uh, by polling uh, experienced scientists about their experience about how, how to progress the field. So 
from your own uh, history and experience, what is your advice to uh, more junior colleagues? What is Paul's law mm -hmm. about how we're going to make progress in the science of the brain? Well, Paul's law would be to commit yourself to the real world. So, you know, a lot of a lot of science we see is is or theoretical science like recreating nice pictures in 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 some piece of software that look like a picture you found in the journal and say, "Ah, it is my model of the brain." It's not good enough. We have to. It's all about performing the experiment of submitting your ideas to reality, and there are different ways to do that. We could do experiments, test our predictions there. We could build robots. The robot works or it doesn't. You know, it's a very simple test of a theory to start with. But the third way to to be real and and test ideas is in the clinic. I mean, if we if we claim that we know how the brain works, you must be able to fix that brain as well. So I think these are the kinds of challenges we can face to benchmark our understanding and submit it to reality as opposed to submit it only to social factors of our uh, the appreciation of our colleagues and so on. Okay, and the second question, uh, which uh, we've also already tied you down to some predictions, but let's see if we can make something slightly shorter term uh, and really concrete. So in five years' time, we'll be here for BCBT again, funding allowed. So... Uh, and we will be able to come and uh, see your iCub robot. What do you predict that it will be doing, and what will that tell us about consciousness? Okay, so I, I predict that um, I can engage in fairly complex dyadic, so one-on-one -on -one interactions with humans in unpredictable environments. But the most specific prediction is that in five years' time, we will be able to parse, so to interpret, the subjective states of this machine that are comparable to the subjective states we might find in other animals such as ourselves. We'll be able to ask iCub if it's conscious or not? Absolutely, you can ask it today already. And maybe it'll say no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. No. Uh, well, you know how it is, right? People can say whatever they want, but why would you believe them? So, but the same with robots. So I think we, have, we will have better methods to do that. Okay, thank you very much, Paul. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks a lot. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.